Building your business was hard. Getting out of it on your terms can be even harder. Welcome to the Tobin Leff M&A Podcast, where you can rewrite the next chapter of your life with the help of business owners who have been in your shoes. In the past decade, Tobin Leff has completed over 125 successful merger and acquisition and exit planning engagements across the U.S. with a focus on marketing, advertising, PR, and digital firms. Go online to TobinLeff.com to learn about the latest in business so that you can build and monetize your company value. Join us now for today's conversation. All right. So today we've got a a special session geared towards uh, agency owners, uh, partners, those wanting to understand the latest on the different options for monetizing your agency, particularly with the end goal of an exit transaction. Leading us today is David Tobin. Some of you probably saw him at the summit as well. He's the founder and managing partner at Tobin Leff, a firm that specializes in exit planning, consulting, and M&A advisory. Their goal is to help their clients convert business value into family wealth. They do this by having their clients understand a greater number of ways to create and close deals, getting as creative as it takes sometimes. Uh, David has crafted exit strategies for four companies of his own. He's also worked with well over a hundred companies now to build business value, acquire other businesses and achieve profitable exits through M&A transactions with strategic buyers and private equity groups. With that, David, thank you for joining us again. It's certainly um, a big topic right now, given all the change and the worries. Have my exit pathways gone away or narrowed? So I think it's timely that we're addressing this with the current market conditions. And I'll turn it over to you and see you towards the end of the session. Great, Brent. Thank you and welcome, everyone. I'm glad to be with you. And those who attended the summit a few weeks ago, I'm glad to be back with you. So the agenda, the topic, as Brent mentioned, pathways for monetizing, ways to convert business value to personal wealth, the agenda that we put together for you, talk about the different exit, we call them pathways, the different ways you may choose to cash out. Spend a little bit of time comparing the pros, cons, the economics of an inside deal compared to selling to a third party. I recently recorded a podcast on this subject, how to sell your company from a position of strength. And I felt that some of those points apply to this agenda, whether you're going to look to sell to your employees or to a third party, approach it on your terms. Outline the elements of an exit plan, and then you're all drivers and business owners or executives. Questions now. The deck, by the way, will be available. You can either email Diana or Brent at Marin or email me. We're happy to share the deck with you. So that's the agenda. And as Brent mentioned, if you have questions along the way, please use the chat feature and we'll try to get those answered. So just if I may, just to take just a moment to talk about Tobin Left. We specialize in your industry, almost exclusive with Marcom. Our partners, myself, we've owned marketing agencies. And just an aside about my background, before I started Tobin Left, I had an agency that I sold in the mid 2000s. Our niche or specialty was working with financial advisors throughout the country, we we generated lead programs for them. I determined the best door opener to put our clients in front of business owners was to discuss exit planning and succession planning. Well, that was in the mid nineties. So I was just thinking about that. So for almost 30 years in one form or another, either as an agency owner or now with the M&A group, I've been advising, consulting, discussing exit planning and succession planning. So at at Tobin Left, the the experience that I'm hoping that where I can share some information with you 
when we got started 11 years ago, we were primarily crafting exit plans for agency owners. And that progressed where we developed, at least we thought we had an expertise, some would argue, but we actually have an expertise in designing management buyout plans. We've helped more than 30 agencies just with internal deals. So today I'm gonna to be sharing with you our firsthand experience of looking at internal deals to outside. I mean, we're M&A advisors. Much of what we do is to try to find outside money. So I'm gonna to touch on exit planning, management buyouts, and M&A dollars. So potential pathways. I'm gonna put up 11 different ways, different clients or other agency owners have pursued their exit pathway. These are in no particular order. So I'm gonna put them up and then four of them, I'm gonna go into more detail. Selling to a strategic buyer, forming an ESOP, selling to employees via a management buyout plan, and then looking at private equity. So I'm gonna go and I'm gonna show you 11 and go into more detail on those four. So potential pathways, but before we do that, before we talk about those routes, what's so important as you know, for you to get clarity on why are you looking to monetize? What are your objectives as an exit plan? So if you request the deck, this is a little grid or worksheet you could consider assessing. It's not always as you can appreciate just about maximizing your purchase price or your net after tax proceeds. Many of our clients, they've wanted to make sure that their legacy continues with the right culture, their employees stay employed, willing to give up on purchase price if the fit was right. Our experience has been typically more energy goes into negotiating the terms of a deal compared to just the selling price or the multiple. So the terms may really be important to you. Are there strings attached to earnout provisions? What are my requirements during that time period? How much cash paid at closing? So this is just a quick overview. As we look at these different exit pathways, do it in context of what is important to you. So potential exit pathways, as mentioned, no particular order. Of course, selling to an independent, another agency or a similar type, type company. Most marketing agencies are sold to other agencies, but there's plenty of other ways we're gonna to touch on in a minute. Holding companies you all know of, you've probably heard good stories and some horror stories with holding companies. They've been very popular at different times, but you have to be a certain size to get onto their radar for one of the portfolio companies of a holding company. It may not be an independent agency. It could be a strategic buyer for different reasons though. We all know consulting have been buying agencies for the past 10 years, technology companies. For example, we sold a client company to a printer of billing statements. They wanted a resource, an agency that could create the materials to go inside all the bills that they send out. So there's different types of buyers, not just another agency that's similar to yours. Employees via a management buyout plan, referred to by some as an MBO. Today, I'm gonna to talk about different financing alternatives if you wanted to explore an internal deal. An entrepreneur. There are so many business people looking for quality companies. And if you're business is valued at maybe $5 million or less, there's plenty of financing sources for individuals, i.e. banks and the SBA. I'm gonna come back to that in a moment, but we're seeing a fair amount of activity. We just recently closed the transaction where first we went out to strategic buyers. We had some offers. Our client ended up selling to an entrepreneur who we identified through one of the sites we subscribed to. So it may be an individual, not just a competing company. Private equity. 
I will go into more detail in a few minutes, also on private equity, what your company may need to look like to get onto their radar, the pros and cons of going that route. Roll-up strategy, which kind of ties into the private equity. ESOPs, they get a lot of press, a lot of talk. It, uh, we've certainly had clients, we had one in recent years form an ESOP just recently. We have another client comparing an ESOP to an outside buyer. I'll take you through from my experience, the requirements, pluses and negatives. Merging, selling to a client. It's, um, we almost had a transaction happen last year where a client was gonna buy a sizable agency, not just to be their in-house, not just for the, they were gonna keep it as an independent to support their portfolio companies and run it as a profit center. That deal did not happen, but we did go down that route and it was interesting. The numbers were looking appealing. And then also we, over the years have had a number of clients who just, just could not get the right terms. They decided, I'm gonna to try to balance my company with lifestyle. They had a plan in place to scale back their time, institute incentives, and hold on to the business longer than expected. So these are 11, there, there are other routes, but these are the ones that come up more often than not. If you request the deck, I just took these 11, put it on for you to try to prioritize or start discussions internally, what might be viable. In starting discussions, we all know the longer you plan in advance, it can only be good. When asked, and it would be great if you could plan a couple years, two, three, four years before your desired date. Always keep in mind when you, initiate an exit planning process, you've got to allow a runway. If you're going to sell to an outside buyer, that process typically takes on average nine months. Because you own a professional services company, there's typically a earnout period that could run for two to three years. So you have to keep that runway in mind. It takes time to plan, find the buyer, sign the purchase agreement, all the due diligence involved to get to that point. And then there's a time period. So let's go through the pros and cons of four of those 11. So independence, it's, I mean, you all have friends or you may have sold companies yourself. On the plus side, there's synergies. You try to see not just on the expense side, but the revenue side, cross-selling opportunities. Typically, if you're gonna to sell to a larger independent, there's attractive employment opportunities for your team members. People like to work on interesting accounts. And if you can find the right partner, even if you're gonna stay involved for two to three years, hopefully if you go this route, you're gonna play in your sweet spot if you're gonna stay involved. Maybe the admin part of the business is off of your shoulders. The downside, when you're selling to independence, it's the multiples typically are not as high if you could really find the true strategic. And not this third point, there is always the risk of revealing confidential information. We're at this now 11 years. I've never really witnessed problems where somebody went to the market if they were confidential, that there was this risk that employees competitors find out. So again, just touching on some of the pros and cons as it relates to selling to an independent. Employees, the, depending upon your size, I mean, if you get too big, doing an internal deal becomes a challenge. So on the plus side, I mean, if you sell to your, if you can get the financing lined up, which I will get to, to in about four slides, I'm gonna take you through some examples of financing options. But on, on the plus side, culture, providing opportunities for your team members, you know who you're getting. Typically, if there's gonna be a time period where they pay you out, you're not per se working for someone else the due diligence is minimized and you may not, have, and you avoid a fee to an, an M&A group. 
the risk is typically the economics. It can your management team come up with enough dollars so that you're not the banker for a high percentage. It takes time to do internal deals typically to get paid. I mean, if, if the buyers can come up with an S are willing to sign an SBA loan guarantee, that's different, but th there's risks with the numbers. The multiples do tend to be lower than even selling to an independent. And the reason is that if you're gonna sell to a third party, there's the potential synergies. You may not need two CFOs or the rent gets consolidated. Well, you don't have those synergies internally. And because future cash flow is funding the transaction, whether it's a bank loan or you are the bank, if the multiple goes too high, future cash flow will not support the debt service. So some of the pros and cons of an MBO. Private equity. It, um, if you're at the point where you could get their attention, there's some strong economic advantages. Typically private equity, they have to deploy capital. You always hear this term, they've dry powder. Well, you get, get your money up front and there's typically two liquidity events. They're not in the business of running a Marcom agency or digital marketing agency. So that they're gonna to try to keep you in the game with rollover equity, we're only buying a portion. So it's an overused term, two bites at the apple, but that's one of the key advantages and opportunities for higher multiples. We had right before COVID a really successful transaction, client company, not real big. Their, their, their EBITDA was 1.8 million, got the attention of private equity backed companies. The multiple was respectable, not great, but it was an almost an all cash deal. The downside of private equity, it's pressure to perform. And they have investors, investment charters, typically they're looking to get a certain return on investment over a three to five year period. There's pressure to perform. You may be answering to a financial buyer and the due diligence, it's just painful. But I will say that in the marketplace, there's so much capital from private equity groups, family offices, venture capitalists. They approach my partners and I on a pretty regular basis, trying to get us to bring our clients to them. The size is coming down. If you have a good story to tell and you can show growth, you may not be what they call big enough to be a platform company where acquisitions are building around you. But as an add-on, it's, I mean, if your EBITDA is north of a million dollars, you can show growth. You may come up and generate the interest as an add-on. Typically a platform, your EBITDA needs to be north of $5 million. So those are some of the high level pros and cons if you look to private equity route. And then with an ESOP, some of you may have either had an ESOP analysis performed or you know of it. On the plus side, there are some added benefits to employees. It's a little deceiving though. When people, when employees hear ESOP, they think they're gonna own the company. They, they don't own the company. The trust owns it. They get to participate as a participant in that trust when they retire. There are some added financial perks to the employees on top of just being an employee of a, an independent company. The, the key to the ESOP is the tax savings. When we've had clients assess ESOPs, it's typically because they're gonna do an ESOP and then if they're not yet structured as an S-Corp, convert to an S-Corp so that the earnings now owned by the ESOP trust, the K-1 goes to the ESOP trust, there's no tax to pay on those dollars on an annual basis. The tax savings in some situations makes that company more bankable where banks will lend money to buy out the founders. So the driving pros are the tax savings. The cons are the, the complexity, they're expensive. And many times if a company is worth 
$5 million, the bank may only lend two, two, maybe 40%. If it's an ESOP, maybe 50%. So now you're dealing with a seller note coming from you to finance 50 to 60%. So those are some of the pros and cons. And I know I'm going through this quickly. It's hard when you're just talking and it's not interactive. So I will try to do my best to keep on task. So inside versus outside deals. That another overuse saying rubber and road and so forth. But the real key is when it comes down to it's usually always the financing. Well, I shouldn't say always. There's two key things. One, making sure you have a team that can grow, sustain your profitability if you back away. And just because you have strong key employees does not mean they're going to be successful owners or entrepreneurs. And then the financing. No owner wants to sell his or her company for a note where they might get 10% from the buyers, 15%, and then expect to get paid over four or five years and go to your mailbox every month. Owners won't do that. So now we have to look to what are those financing alternatives. So there's bank and the SBA. Let me put the five or six up and then I'll come back to it. So we've got bank financing, bank financing backed by the SBA. The seller note is the example I just used where you're completely the bank. Long range buy-ins over time by multiple employees. And then I'm gonna to touch on the strategy that we've employed for a number of companies with the voting and non-voting. So if you're gonna consider an inside deal, you wanna get your money or a good percentage of your money. The SBA is very active today, even with all that's going on with the PPP money and their attention, the SBA is very supportive if employees have the right credit, if there's a company that can demonstrate cash flow, the SBA will do a maximum of $5 million. So you have to keep that in mind. It's a good option if your company's valued at a certain range. When you get too big, it becomes challenging to put the financing together. The recapitalize with voting and non-voting shares. It, if I go back to nobody wants to sell their company for a note. What we've done, we've employed this for a number of clients. Instead of a note, if you're gonna sell or finance, we've had our clients recapitalize the company with voting and non-voting shares, where 90 plus percent of all issued and outstanding shares are recapitalized to non-voting. You as the founder or seller, you hold on to all the voting shares until your management team buys out over time all of your non-voting shares. And it typically takes four to five years. I can show you case studies if anybody wants to see it. But the key is you hold the keys to the kingdom until your non-voting shares are bought. So I put these up as examples that many times we've had clients where they said, I didn't think financing was an option because my employees won't sign a loan guarantee. And we've introduced some other strategies and we've helped our clients put side by side, what does an internal deal look like compared to selling outside? So I wanna take you through examples based on what we're seeing in the marketplace, just comparing side by side. So here, here's an example. This is actually an, an actual case. The deal didn't get done, but we were helping this client assess. We have a client, their AGI gross profit was $9 million a little bit over a 10% net income, 11% EBITDA margin. So pre-COVID, these were the kind of, we're actually seeing terms like this now, but not in the heat of COVID, but a company like this, and it, this is an integrated agency, a solid client base, but nothing that would say we're so unique that we can command a higher multiple. Typically an integrated shop might, the multiple might be four and a half to five and a half. Cash at closing a third to 50%. Most earn out plans are three years. We've done some shorter, we've done some longer. So these are likely terms on an 
integrated shop with margins that you're seeing. To do an internal deal, as mentioned, typically the multiples are lower. When I look back over most of our internal deals, it's hard to get five and above because cash flow without synergistic savings, it takes too long to pay it out. So purchase price will be lower. If we go the SBA route, this size company would qualify in this price range. The SBA would be looking for the buyers, the employee or employees to come up with at least 10%. A seller note might be 10 to 25%, and then the bank would lend the rest. The seller note becomes a little dicey because if, if you go the SBA route, if this goes too high, your money is at risk, whatever you're financing, because you have to take a second position to the bank and the SBA typically will not allow the buyers to make payments to you for a couple years until the bank is confident that there's enough cash flow to pay the bank. So again, I'm generalizing, but to show you the kind of terms we're seeing, just to compare the two potential pathways. So moving on, and we're gonna allow plenty of time for questions. So how to sell your company from a position of strength. Last week, I published an episode on one of our podcasts on this very subject. We had a client deal that 11th hour, the deal fell apart. I did a webinar on why I believe we were in a weak position when our client went to the marketplace in March of this year, right in the middle of the pandemic, but how we ended up in a stronger position. Some of these points that I picked up off of the webinar, I believe apply whether you're selling inside or outside. So no particular order, but how to approach any one of those 11 exit pathways from a position of strength. Plan in advance. You heard me talk about how long it might take. You've got to be ready and committed to the process. It, it, it's draining to sell your company. It's a roller coaster, emotional highs and lows. It takes time. You've got to be ready to, it's almost a job unto itself. If you pick the right M&A group, they, we are going to do our best to carry some of the heavy, heavy lifting, but it, you've got to be ready emotionally, financially, and with the time commitment to it. Make sure you really do take stock in what you have. Everybody believes their home is worth more than it actually is. Well, everyone believes their company's worth more than it is. Make sure you have a real appreciation. What is your company worth for different types of buyers? I'm going to put up on the next slide, and again, if you request the deck, the 12 or 13 questions that most buyers will typically ask or be thinking of, be prepared, be ready. And if you don't have good answers to them, get out in front of it, because if there's any problems, red flags, weaknesses, it, they always come out during either the negotiations or the due diligence process, and then you're in a defensive position. So be ready with questions that buyers will typically ask. Value drivers, on our website, we, we have a white paper on value drivers, different variables that will impact your value to command a high or depressed multiple. So I, I, we also have a proprietary tool we're happy to share with you that ranks 60 plus value drivers to give you a feel of where you're strong and where you're weak. Your financials have to be in good order. Like you would get your house in order. Instituting incentives. I have a slide coming up on that in a minute. It's so important to have your key employees on board with you, that they have a seat at the table. Let me just see. I know I'm getting some chats. I'm sorry, I didn't notice those. Brent, if I may ask you to just keep an eye on the chats. I'm not paying attention to them. Yeah, I've got the chat fully covered. You're all good. Thanks. Uh, explore multiple exit pathways. 
seek offers from multiple suitors. Over the years, many times clients, prospective clients have come to us and they said, we're having discussions with a particular company and we would help advise them. And some of those deals got done, but that's very different. You negotiating with one buyer compared to committing to a process where hopefully you have multiple offers and having a fallback position that you have your desired exit pathway, you're going down, you're hopefully approaching it from a position of strength. If the deal, if you choose to walk away or the deal falls apart, you're okay because you have a fallback position. And that plan B may be you have strong incentives in place for your team. You can balance your lifestyle with work or you prepared if needed to finance an internal deal. Possibly you've lined up some investors, have a fallback position. So from our experience, these are some ways, some strategies where when it's your time for your exit, we all get to only sell our own companies one time, that it's on your terms. These are those questions I mentioned. I'm not going to read through them. If you don't mind, just take a quick glance at them. I may touch on one or two. vision plan. You're out a couple years or whenever your desired exit pathway is. Hopefully buyers are coming to you. Maybe we'll hopefully in person. And you're very well prepared to answer these questions. What's unique about your business? What are your competitive advantages? What's so key is the is the company dependent on you? The fourth one down. As you know, if it's dependent on you, it's going to be less valuable if you want out. And then that bottom line just drives it home. Predictable, sustainable, and transferable. I just encourage you to keep, start with the end in mind. So instead of plans for key people, we have a client right now, I'm helping them with an exit plan. We're simultaneously, we're assessing an ESOP, they're big enough, they're their EBITDA is north of $2 million. Their AGI is around $11 million. We're, we had an ESOP analysis, preliminary analysis assessment done. I've helped them really appreciate what the terms may look like to an outside buyer. And I think we're even going to go a step further and have some preliminary meetings with potential buyers. We also met with the key member of their internal team. And then the next step is if this internal leader is very, very supportive, we're most likely going to involve three other employees. Well, this client committed to a phantom stock plan for these four team members. And the reason is they want to be able to say, whichever pathway we go down, you, my key employees, will benefit. If we sell to you, the management team, you have an opportunity to own a company. If we form an ESOP, there's gonna be added incentives to you through deferred compensation. And if we sell outside, you're gonna get a percentage of the selling price. So it, it just, it changes the dynamics if you're key people, because you're selling a service firm. Any buyer is gonna to wanna to meet your members of your leadership team. They're going to want to try to lock them in. And if they know your key people or have incentives to stay, it's going to enhance your value. We, um, we actually have helped a number of clients with these plans. We're not attorneys, but we can show you if anybody's interested in what we believe are some best practice plan designs. But it, it's really important. So I go back to approach it from a position of strength. Excuse me appreciate questions that buyers are going to most likely ask or be thinking, assess your different exit options. And if you're going to craft an exit plan, so we've been doing exit plans. I mentioned, I started the firm crafting exit plans. Well, when I say to an owner, do you have an exit plan? Some will say yes, no. And many times they don't even know what an exit plan is. 
Most donors don't. It sounds great, but what is an exit plan? We, we all think we should have one. Well, these are the 11 or 12 elements of most plans that if we help an owner craft, so you've got to crystallize not just the shareholders, but the stakeholders. What's important to the key players? What are the objectives of the plan? I mentioned some of those in that earlier slide. What are you looking for? Make sure you know your company's value for different types of buyers. What we just went through for the last half hour, look at the pluses and negatives at different exit pathways. Let's really drill down, not just the selling price, but what do you walk away with? What are the employment incentives and so forth? Are you at a stage where you can command the kind of dollars you need to move on to your quote next chapter? If not, do you need to put a plan in place to try to enhance enter enterprise value? Maybe via strategic acquisitions, incentive plans I just mentioned, tax planning, and the fallback position. So these are some of the key elements of an exit plan. So that is what we have. So we have 20 minutes if you guys want to stick around, not that we need all 20 minutes, but Brent, if we could to open it up to questions. And yeah, we've actually got a number of questions that could come in. In fact, why don't we go back one slide, David? When you look at this one here, elements of an exit plan, what would you say are the top couple of areas where an owner needs to spend a good amount of time or you see a lack of time spent where it should be? What are some of the pitfalls in here, areas that owners need to keep top of mind when they're building this? A couple standout items. You have to get clarity on what do you take stock in what you have. And so we've had a number of situations where people have heard from a conference, my business is worth one times my AGI or my gross profit. And so they come into it with expectations that may not be real. So it's assessing on the front end. It should be on here, but elements of an exit plan, it kind of goes without saying, you've got to really take your time to make this happen. Take your time to work through the different potential exit pathways, the fifth one down. I also think it's really important, not after the fact or deep into the process to involve your key people, forth from the bottom, incentive plans, the phantom stock plans, if they're structured properly, so that you're not reacting. Those are some, Brent, that jump out from my experience. Um, a few questions here. Um, you mentioned before selling to different types of companies. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of the unexpected types of companies that have purchased agencies kind of, I guess, outside the norm? We don't, I can only point to a few that we were involved firsthand. Let me go back to that slide, pull it up. Most of the uh, attendees joining us today have all heard about, read about the consulting firms, but not just the real large ones. We all heard about Deloitte and Accenture and so forth. But if, I don't know, if, if you guys follow trade publications, there's also those middle level management consulting, some are technology companies that are buying. I mentioned we had a large printer buying agency so I don't have many firsthand examples other than the consulting and that printing company. Okay. Yeah. Fair, fair point. Um, and a couple people have been asking about getting a copy of the deck. Um, so yes, we'll happy. Uh, if you email back where you got the login info to, in fact, David, why don't you pop up your slide that's got your email address on it as well. Sure. There's a couple of people mentioned they would like to email you directly with a few questions as well. 
So there's David's uh, email and the deck will be coming. Um, preparing <clears throat> the senior management team, at what point should you engage them knowing that retention is going to be key for the deal? So thoughts on kind of when, how to engage that senior group who will keep running the agency? Ideally, you're planning your exit on average three years out. I mean, it just gives you time to do it on your terms. When you start getting serious about thinking about crafting your plan to monetize, I believe that's when to start involving members of your leadership team. It gives you time as a group to prepare the company. If you institute a phantom stock plan, sometimes they're based on appreciated value from that point in time moving forward. Other times, if they've been with you, it, if you're gonna consider an internal deal, a lot goes into thinking about an MBO. Do we need to recruit additional members of the team? What do the buyer's personal finances need to look like to get approved? So, I mean, look, you're all busy running a company, but as it relates to this subject, if you could do it a few years out on your schedule, it, it'll increase the likelihood you get more money. So it sounds like the sooner the better. And, and is there, should there be concerns about any resentment or great, you're planning on cashing out and leaving, you're not committed to the organization long-term? Have you seen any challenges there? Are there any concerns that they should be aware of? Yeah, that's a good point, a good question. You do have to be very careful at how it's presented. Most people resist change, so they'll get scared. They may be comfortable with the current ownership. However, in most situations, employees actually think that the owner is making more than he or she is anyways. Not that you have to share all the financials, it, companies that have a good culture, there's good communications between the leader and the next level down. So I think it can only be good if it's well thought out, you're proactive, and there's transparency. Yeah. Um, you know, you when you sort of see comments, read up on kind of Warren Buffett a bit and his investment philosophy and strategies. And he'll talk a lot about, you know, one of the things he looks for is consistency, you know, in that revenue sales pipeline. Now in the agency business, I'm kind of curious your thoughts here. There's agencies can cycle a lot. It's pretty common that almost every agency in the business has its up and down cycle with new business, with organic growth, revenue in general. How do those looking to acquire an agency look at that how do they feel about that do they just know it's part of the norm and you just kind of look for the average how do they feel think about the inconsistencies in a new business pipeline for agencies what well, it's a key variable when an experienced or sophisticated buyer assesses an offer to put forth we can go back and look at our transactions. There are a number of agencies that there is consistency, maybe not so much to their top line, but they know how to adapt and run a profitable operation. So a very important variable is profit margins, net income as a percentage of AGI. When you make an investment that you believe will help in the future. It's so important to document that and tell that as part of the story. We've had clients that they lost a major account. They made a conscious decision to keep employees at a certain level. And they could say why, because they, their pipeline was strong. So if you're gonna have ups and downs, you need to be able to support it to show that you were on top of those decisions and, and, and adapt to it. The, the hard part is if, if you're dependent on a couple 
large clients, you're going to have that risk. And then you're prone to what you just mentioned, Brent, the ups and downs. And does that affect, do you see the valuation often if there is an over-dependency on one or two clients that they have a disproportionate amount of contribution to profit? Where you where it's impacted, it's it's not so much on the selling price, but the terms of the deal. When we have clients and there's a high concentration risk, somebody will say to that seller, I'll give you a respectable multiple, but you have to deliver that to me. And if we lose this major account, it's not on me. It's on you're gonna have to shoulder some of that because there's an earnout attached to it. So if you come into the selling process and there's a high percentage around one or two clients, you're going to have to share that risk most likely. Yeah. When do you expect the market in general to come back a little bit more in terms of being more active, buyers becoming more active? Do you have a sense of what's ahead on that? Yeah. We're seeing buyers are back in the market. Hmm. When COVID first hit, it was just so unknown. And buyers focused on either their operating companies or private equity groups on their portfolio companies. Nobody had a sense on what will the true impact be. We still don't, but today, most business owners, I'm sure people joining us on this, we've all adapted. I mean, people are back to running their business. It may not be where it was. So buyers are buying but the marketplace has shifted. It changed from 2016 through 19. It was a, it was a seller's market. It's today, I mean, I'm generalizing, it's more of a buyer's market. So buyers are out there. I mean, we're doing more buy side work now because people are looking for better terms in, in lower values. Well, I was looking for your slide on how to get a multiple of 10 during a recession, but I didn't see that. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, <laughs> when we find that slide, will you promote it to, to your group? <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, and, you know, how has the pandemic, how has the current situation overall kind of impacted valuations, would you say? Um, obviously, it's had an impact, but Tell us a little bit more, even as the market, you say it's coming back a little bit, how are, how are valuations sort of being impacted right now? Yeah, timely question. This morning we had a planning meeting with a client, large agency, we're helping them try to buy companies and some really quality companies he's considering. We're gonna be putting forth respectable multiples. I mean, 5x for smaller agencies, maybe even a little bit higher. These aren't the kind of multiples that could command high, the kind of companies that can command real high multiples. But what's different, Brent, though, is the terms, where maybe in the past, this buyer would have had to put forth at least 50% cash at closing. The offers we're talking about are in the 33 to 40% range. So I one thing, though, that's a little misleading, and if I could just put this to our viewers, I go through this all the time. We'll meet a, a prospective client. They'll say, we'll do an opinion of value report, and we'll come back with our experience. They'll say, well, I've been hearing I can get 7x, 9x. And I'll ask, well, where did you hear that? They'll say, well, I see it you know, on my research on the web. Well, first of all, a lot of those deals, what you don't see are what the terms have been. It's not, most deals aren't public information. There's surveys done. It's hard to get if you're below 5 million of EBITDA. It's just a challenge to get these high numbers because if you're a buyer, you have to buy a company with after-tax dollars. So unless there's going to be growth or tremendous synergistic savings, experienced buyers won't pay more than 5X. Now, we have some deals getting done above that. I'm just trying to make a point. We're not seeing these for, again, agencies with 
EBITDA of less than 5 million, we're not seeing seven, eights, and nines too easily. Yeah. And, and, and some of those studies, I believe, are misleading. Um, and it sounds like, in general, it's the valuations, there's the potential to still have a good valuation, but the terms, the duration of those terms, probably a little bit more extended compared to a year ago. Correct. Yeah, yeah, which makes sense. Um, David, I think that's a, a wrap. Uh, we've addressed all the questions that have come in. Uh, thank you again for kind of a good overview, stepping back, sort of getting a latest take on where things are at with, um, with exiting for agencies. Uh, again, everyone, David's email is right there on the screen for you. I'd encourage you to reach out if you have further questions for him. David, thank you for taking the time to, uh, to join us. We look forward to You're continued welcome. sessions with you. Um, that is a wrap, everyone. Don't forget to check the Mirren Direct site for other upcoming uh, webinars, mirrendirect.com slash webinars. We've got another series coming up. Starts December 1, getting paid for all of your work. We've got one on increasing the speed and efficiencies of your projects. New client scope landmines. Uh, how to tighten those up, day-to-day -day estimates and proposals, how to craft those so that you're, you're getting paid for everything at the best fee possible. Some good hands-on working sessions coming up. Then November 19th, in just a couple of days, we've got Tombris, a pretty hot agency of about 300 people going to be sharing some of their latest best practices on how to maintain higher morale, I'm talking about employee health and well-being while running a remote operation. So they're going to kind of look at actually productivity and health and well-being with your remote team. So some pretty critical topics coming up. That's a wrap, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Have a good rest of your week. We'll see you back online soon. Thanks, David. You're welcome. Thanks, Brad. Bye-bye. Right. Thanks for listening to the Tobin Leff M&A podcast produced by Hannah Vaughn with music by Holt Vaughn. Visit our website at tobinleff.com for case studies, additional resources, and to get in touch with our experts. Subscribe today and never miss an episode.